0: This is a sort of one-off, I suppose, exclusive podcast for teachers and leaders who, due to the terrible effects of the coronavirus, are now faced with the challenge of teaching remotely, whose schools are closed and are now working in an online and distance learning environment. My name is Jamie Scott, and I'm joined by my colleague, Stuart Kime. Hello. We're from Evidence-Based Education and in this podcast we hope to offer some helpful advice on the kind of assessment and feedback practices you can use in an online environment, in an online context. We've been asked to do so by colleagues at Dulwich College International and we're happy to try and help. We uh, sat here can only imagine what teachers in this situation are dealing with, so please forgive us of any wrong assumptions that we might make. Broadly speaking, We think that many of the effective principles of assessment and feedback can still apply to the online learning environment. It's just that they're reframed and applied in this new context. So notwithstanding the personal and professional stress of of the situation and having to uh, adapt to it, there may be an opportunity here to put effective and efficient practices to work As human beings, when we're face to face with someone, we tend to rely on nonverbal cues to express intention or to gauge if our meaning has been understood. The lack of physical presence is clearly challenging, but having to compensate for this may enhance some practices. So to reiterate, this is a relatively quick exploration of assessment and feedback in an online context. Much of the advice offered here is taken from the principles covered in our assessment essentials course, but we've also received a bit of input um, from members of our advisory board, particularly John Hattie. Um, and finally, before we start on assessment, it's worth noting that probably the advice that we have is probably most pertinent to teachers working in upper primary and uh, secondary settings. Stuart, to get started, um, what are some of the key considerations for assessing students
1: regardless of the context? Um, I suppose first and foremost, um, good assessment practice is purposeful. Um, so if we think of assessment as a process that is used to generate inferences, you know um, and actionable meanings about students, then we need to make sure that we're targeting precisely, um, the what um, of what we're trying to assess, so the, the kind of target of it, and then also the why, for what purpose, because that then affects everything to do with you know the design of the assessment and how you interpret information from it and what have you. So be really, really clear about exactly the target of the assessment and then why you're doing it um, and really um, be guided by the curriculum. So, you know, those targets of the assessment should already be, you know, fully agreed, um, you know, and set out in a, in a well-formulated and well-structured curriculum. So actually, you know, the role of the teacher then always is to go back to that and make sure that the questions that you're asking, that the inferences that you're gathering are about that, um, uh, about that curriculum. A really good assessment then is about, um, you know, generating information, you know, like I said, actionable meanings. Um, and, you know, whether you are working remotely with students who are at home or in the classroom, above all else, as a teacher, you need good information to work out, you know, who knows what, who needs to do what, you know, next steps and, and, and all of those other things that are sort of normal classroom practice. But obviously, you know, in an online environment, that's, um, it's, it's, I guess, more challenging uh, if you're not mm-hmm. used to it, but also probably opens up a nice opportunity um, because oftentimes in classrooms we kind of rely on what Rob, our colleague Rob Coe, talks about as poor proxies for learning. You know, you mentioned nonverbal cues before, mm. but actually sometimes those nonverbal cues, like they look like they're busy or, you know, they've got their heads down, they're scribbling or whatever. And actually um, they're not really good proxies for learning. Mm. So when you can't see a student, they're not directly in front of you, you can't pick up on those things, You've got to actually uh, be much, much clearer about not just what you're looking for, but also the process of generating that information and, and, you know, working out whether or not what you're seeing is evidence of somebody engaging in learning or, you know, evidence of just sitting there and daydreaming or whatever it might be.
0: Okay. So um, we, to state the obvious, I suppose, there, we need to make sure, I mean, teachers may be thrown into this new context and it could be easily forgiven. Um, For sort of overlooking um, opportunities to generate information that they're going to receive back, and then um, be able to feed back on that and check how learners are doing and identify misconceptions or whatever it might be. So in planning learning activities, assessment has got to be at the forefront of our minds.
1: Yeah, totally. It's part. You know, learning is about uh, you know the long term retention of. You know whatever it is that you want them to learn but then also the ability to transfer it to novel contexts. an assessment then is you know what uh, dylan's described as the bridge between teaching and learning so you know whether you're sat in a classroom or you're sat remotely at home doing this you've got to build a bridge and you know that bridge is built of you know really well-targeted questions and tasks that you're then confident that the student is responding to those tasks in the way that you want so that you know, um, you know, how how they're doing on those things, whether they can do the calculations that are set, um, whether they can, you know, write the paragraph that you want them to be able to accurately, unsupported or with the scaffolding that's needed in order to get them there, whatever it is. So the challenge then is one of, you know, um, high quality information and that Mm. information is your bridge. Yeah. Okay, so with that, let's
0: look at some types of assessment that might be useful in an online context. Um, And we should say with the advice that we're we're going to offer, um, to some extent we're assuming for some aspects of assessment that you have the ability to incorporate quizzes into Mm -hmm. your online learning environment, whether it's a feature of the system that you're using itself or you can incorporate quizzes from other sites such as Google Forms, Microsoft, Padlet, Quizlet whatever it might be. So the first assessment approach we're going to explore is retrieval practice, or what's also known as the
1: testing effect. Mm. All right, so when we talk about retrieval, you know, it's basically a test. You're being put in a position of somehow being tested uh, so that you... Uh, you have to output things, so it's, we're no longer talking about um, you know inputting, you know, bit of studying things, revising for things, but actually putting students in a position where they have to retrieve information from their, their, their brains to apply it, to practice things, to demonstrate understanding of something. Um, and you know, the best way that we've got really to do that is to um, ask you know really good questions, well-targeted questions, um, and to to put. Yeah, to kind of create what, what you know, Robert Bjork at UCLA has described as these desirable difficulties. So retrieval practice works nicely when a child is, um, you know, is challenged um, in a way that means that they can uh, you know, succeed at the challenge. So you know, a question is desirably difficult when you've got the prior knowledge and experience to, um, to answer a question that you find difficult, but you can succeed at it. Um, And what we know is that by generating an answer yourself, um, it tends to be more kind of productive for your learning than if you're simply presented with the information. So for a teacher working particularly in an online environment, you know, instead of giving lots and lots of input, you know, you should, I think, be um, creating lots of opportunities for output and then expecting, you know, uh, from the student's, them to experience the degree of cognitive challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously then, you know, the the issue for a a teacher, I suppose, is how you manage that moment when the child is finding that difficulty, kind of getting through that. So this is a learning strategy where the focus is getting information
0: out and by retrieving and outputting that information, the memory for that information is strengthened. So this might be a good time to check students' knowledge of things You've taught two months ago, four months ago, six months ago. um, And to strengthen that knowledge, you could do this by putting together low stakes quizzes. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, using uh, low stakes practice testing, you know, whether you're uh, working remotely or in the classroom is just I think is is probably a a good thing, generally speaking. Um, But, you know, there are caveats to that. Uh, if you repeatedly get somebody to retrieve information that is actually inaccurate, then that's what's going to get embedded. Mm. So as a teacher, you know, you need that high quality information that, that gives you evidence that what they're actually retrieving is really the right stuff, is the correct answer, is the fact, you know, as it's supposed to be, you know, embedded in them. Because if, if they've got a misconception and you keep on getting them to retrieve incorrect mm. information, that's what's going to stick. Um So retrieval practice is basically, you know, that low stakes or even no stakes practice testing um, that actually, uh, you know, um, working remotely and using online tools is actually, you know, it's quite a neat strategy because there are so many good kind of tools out there that you can, you know, leverage to uh, to kind of create the, the, you know, the, the tests and such like
0: Okay. And there are some resources out there that we've come across um, that people might be interested in if they haven't heard of them themselves. So um, I'm not sure exactly how you search on this, but Adam Boxer's Retrieval Roulette. So that's Adam Boxer. um, is is quite a a nice um, um, Excel-based tool that helps you to generate questions. There's some pre-made ones on there, but then there's a template as well for generating your own quizzes um, you mentioned to me before we start this conversation diagnostic questions. Yeah, is that a free? That's a free resource. Uh, I don't know if it's free.
1: You should I like Google that now? Okay. Yeah, uh, it certainly. I think was free last time we yeah. checked. I don't know. So diagnostic questions is a tool. At least some of which I don't know if it's all available for free. But that's you know. That's you one can one certainly one. get started for free and use
0: some of the questions and create your own quizzes and and so on.
1: Yeah, um, and also I mean I I'd say that as a Kind of um, a nice uh, kind of learn, learning strategy. Again, if your children are able to do this, get them to um, to design some questions, to, some you know to you know to test each other, and that could then be you know uh, sent back to you as a teacher um, for you to, to share with others, or even. And we're going I think we're gonna talk about peer assessment later on as a kind of you know uh, a, a kind of quizzing thing for um, for you know, partners if you're able to work either online or in person get children to do that to collaborate like that i think that's quite a nice way of doing things but yeah also um uh, i like to use um, padlet as well padlet's quite a nice tool for um, you know asking a question and then generating responses from people Um, again that's that's freely available i think you can have three padlets on the go uh, before you have to start to pay for it so that's quite a nice one yeah and then other things like like these, the Google Forms. Yeah, they're all um,
0: yeah freely available and um, yeah. relatively straightforward to use. And I'm sure uh, teachers know of, of a lot of those things and more than we know of as well. Yeah. So um, let's move on to another type of assessment and let's talk about self-assessment. So by the nature of the current situation mm. in an online um, environment, we have an opportunity or perhaps even a necessity to help students take control of their own learning. Um, And this is something that can be aided by assessment and transferring some of the responsibility of assessment to our students is obviously central to this aim. Can you talk on this a little bit more,
1: Stuart? So I think self-assessment is potentially quite a powerful tool, but one of the things that it really relies on is uh, the ability to self-regulate so see self-assessment as just, you know, using kind of broadly good assessment practice, you know, asking good questions um, gener- you know kind of creating those uh, desirably difficult moments when, you know, somebody has to think hard about an answer and all that kind of stuff. But acknowledge that if you're going to do it, you know, for yourself, then one of the things, you know, about this you know, the notion of self-regulation is that you've got to have some kind of motivation to do it. So helping students to see the value in self-assessment um, for a start and a kind of explaining um, about you know, why it might be useful, how it works and trying to help them develop a willingness to do it in the first place is really one of the, I think, key underlying factors for making it work well. But above and beyond that, if you've got a group of students who are willing to have a go at it and perhaps see value in figuring out you know, how I'm getting on, mm. you know, can I know more about me? then there are, there are generally four things that seem to kind of help. Um, one is um, kind of providing uh, examples of exactly what a student is, is learning and what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, show them um, and, and kind of model uh, the you know the calculation the piece of writing the mm-hmm. the um, the diagram whatever it is so that you've got a kind of clear you know mental model of, of what that thing is so obviously we
0: normally do that in the classroom yeah. but maybe you know here's a nice chance to be really explicit with our models that yeah. we give out in the through an online learning platform whatever yeah yeah might be.
1: yeah and I think one of the things about you know working remotely is that then you know you're kind of Perhaps they forced into thinking about the quality of the, the model that's there yeah. that you're presenting as opposed to certainly what I used to do as a teacher with kind of relying more on my ability in class to kind of whiz around and you know, clarify things yeah. if the model itself wasn't sufficient. So, yeah, provide uh, something that is clear and understandable, uh, you know, as a kind of worked example. Um, and then for self-assessment have you know um, shared success criteria that you know things that are specific and and understood by the students so not only have they got a model of, of what it looks like when it's done well they understand you know what the steps are along the way mm-hmm. and what kind of what are the kind of constituent parts of that successful thing is it you know a to do with if it's a you know in art um, you know doing a drawing that had that uses perspective then uh, what are the kind of steps along the way, the success criteria for doing, you know, for creating a, a drawing that has everything in perspective, for instance? Okay. Um, and make that really explicit. But then, and this is where it gets kind of challenging, I guess, um, if you're working remotely, to, to ensure that there are opportunities for students to engage in identifying in their own work, so mm. they review it and then think, okay, can I apply those success criteria to figure out where. I am succeeding and where I'm not and where I need to continue my own work. So again, this is one of those kind of desirably difficult things that is totally manageable for somebody who's got the motivation, who understands the success criteria and then is put in a position where they can review their own stuff and figure out you know, what's going well and what's not. And the last part of this is then to add in the, you know, the opportunity for independent work on this. Mm-hmm. So not only have you figured out where you are in terms of some kind of end goal um, and how you're doing against some success criteria, you then actually have time set aside to act on it. Yeah, And that's really crucial. But again, you know the, the kind of environment that people are currently working in probably lends itself you know, to that, I would guess. I mean, I'm making lots of assumptions here.
0: OK, then, so let's move on to another type of assessment that we might think about in this context. Yeah.
1: What have you got? OK, so, I mean, again, using the same kind of uh, core principles of good assessment practice, you know, that it's uh, purposeful, focused in on a, on a clearly defined target. Then en- engaging in peer assessment, I think, you know, again, there could be, uh, some some nice use in in uh, or kind of nice uses of technology here, and trying to continue to have a classroom community somehow or other by getting students to work, I guess, electronically uh, in collaboration with their peers. But again, like with self-assessment, this really works well when we don't consider peer assessment as you know me marking your work. That's mm-hmm. not really what it's about. Um, where formative peer assessment works well, again, what, what students need is those exemplars, those examples of what's you know what good it uh, looks like in this area, so that there's a kind of shared understanding of that. The success criteria, opportunities, you know, set aside again, but this time for identifying areas for, for improvement and successes in somebody else's work. Yeah, so we're, we're relying then. Um,
0: on those students to recall the model that we've given them, and then they're in a, this new sort of situation reviewing someone else's yeah. work yeah. to recall the kind of the, the model and the guidance success criteria yeah. that we've given well, them so, so to so see I'm, if it's present in another pe- person's yeah. piece of work. I mean,
1: it's, it's, think of it as, you know, you've got self-assessment, and if you know, you know, how, if you understand the, you know, the, um, the ideal version of, you know, what good looks like in this particular topic or this task, you've got a model of that, and you've got the success criteria and you're able to apply it to your own works, basically trying to then apply it to somebody else's and then to communicate, um, you know, some ideas about how they might go go forwards and, and some things that they could do. Um, again, you know, it, it only works if you know how to do it and you feel able and confident to do it. Um, but it might be quite a, a neat way of kind of continuing to create that sort of classroom Uh, community sense of the classroom and supporting other other, um, peers outside of the the normal kind of classroom environment
0: okay so the last bit on on assessment um, and I'm not sure how this works in an online situation but in any sequence of learning hinge questions you know are pretty crucial to identifying whether students are ready to move on are we able to use what Dylan William calls as hinge questions in an online context do we think?
1: Well I, I think so I mean I think let's take away the title hinge question and say what what are we actually doing um, and, and you know and why are we doing it and all a hinge question does is it tries to um, identify an important kind of moment in a sequence of learning when we need to know whether, whether children are ready to move on and that you know that's why it's referred to as this hinge point mm. so if you've got some way of, um, you know, setting a task, gathering evidence for you as a teacher that you can feel confident that, you know, children have, have, you know, mastered a particular concept or aspect of a concept, then I would say, you know, whether you use hinge questions or, or you know, some other technique, that's the crucial bit. It's providing evidence for you and confidence that they're ready to move on to something else. Hinge questions, I think, then if you if you go down the route of um, you know um, identifying you know where that hinge point is asking a question that is maybe like a multiple choice question that can be quite useful mm-hmm. um, and then figuring out exactly well what do you do um, if a child can't answer that so mm-hmm. what's the next step so having a clear plan for um, what what um, individuals and groups do if they, answer correctly if they don't answer correctly and I think the neat thing about using multiple choice questions is if you build the um, the options say if you've got three options for your question one of those is right the other two ideally are wrong but for different reasons Mm. so that then if if I pick option b and that's wrong well you know as a teacher it's wrong because there's a certain thing that I haven't understood okay whereas if I pick option c I've got it wrong but I've, because i've misunderstood something else and so as a teacher then you know okay well that hinge doesn't open but i kind of know why it doesn't open so i've got an idea of what i need to get you yeah. focused on next but i would say particularly with the lack of like the non-verbal cues in the classroom environment ask a few you yeah. know set a few in there to be reassured sure
0: so questioning questioning again becomes sort of a, a a key tool, I suppose, in this online context. Because Massively. when we're in the classroom, yeah. we're relying on looking around, seeing people, I don't know, maybe they're poor proxies. But, you know, yeah, you take yeah. these cues yeah. of smiling, nodding, or
1: people saying, I don't yeah. get it. And you can look over at somebody's be. work and see what they're doing yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Well, when that's gone, you know, and, and there are online tools that you can use to see people's work, fine. But where well, those, those the things that we normally rely on as classroom teachers, where those go... I would say one of your your biggest assets is you know really um, you know well focused questions asked regularly so that you're, one you're engaging in your kids actually thinking of answers to them but you yourself are getting information that increases the degree of certainty that you've that you have that they're actually getting this stuff and that it's sticking. Okay. So um,
0: typically within a lesson you you. You ask it, it key points within the lesson in an online context. Yeah, what I suppose we might be dropping in. We're still in email contact with students, yeah, or yeah. there might be a chat box or whatever. Yeah. So you might be dropping in on individuals, but with the same sorts of questions or the same question, just to check
1: how they're doing. Yeah, what, yeah. I think they've got of, the concept. Think of these these questions as um, as you know what what Rob has called multiple inadequate glances. Yeah. You know, um, and and it, and it's it's probably even more inadequate because you're not in the room and you can't see all the rest of the context. So you need, I think, you know, asking lots of well-targeted questions is going to be really important. And you know, if it was me, I'd probably be, I'd have like a, maybe a, a kind of a daily question for my class that's sort of like a, a big idea question. But then I'd probably want to be using you know online tools to you know, ask, ask those kind of minute-by-minute minute sort of questions that you would do in the classroom. Um, but, you know, obviously not doing it minute-by-minute. Minute I was say. But to kind of plan through, well, what, what do I need to know? Yeah. You know, and, and see it in, like, if you're asking questions, look at it from two points of view. One, questions that uh, are, you're expecting to provide information to you as a teacher, you know, um, so that you can make decisions about what happens next. And then the other is um, asking questions to engage students in that outputting, in that retrieval. Yes. For which you don't need information. You don't necessarily need to see what they've output. You just need to know that they're actually outputting and retrieving and engaging. But those
0: those though are also opportunities to identify misconceptions. Exactly. Basically. So you're keeping a check on them. Um, and you might give whole class feedback or something if you're seeing a common misconception.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, definitely.
0: Okay, we're going to move on to feedback now. Let's just, because it's a good place to start,
1: just sort of remind ourselves on a definition of feedback. Okay, so um, let's think of feedback as um, information for a start, um, and it's information about the performance on a task that somebody has has engaged in. And and the reason for generating that information is with this kind of eventual aim of, of improving students' learning.
0: Okay, and we've kind of touched on it already with assessment. There are two sort of key ingredients, aren't there? There's, yeah, yeah, There's the quality information yep. that the provider of the feedback needs to act on. Yep. And so that's the assessment that we're planning into activities. And then, obviously, the effective communication of this information to the yeah. student.
1: Yeah, and let's be clear about what I mean by communication. That's not just a one-way street of telling somebody. Communication is about receiving and understanding. Yes. And if you listen to people like Shirley Clark. Dylan William, John Hattie, the only thing that matters about feedback is what a student does with it. Yeah, Otherwise, formless. it's just hot air. Yeah. If they don't act upon it, it's it's meaningless.
0: Yeah. And there's some, um, I think Daisy Christodoulou puts it quite nicely. She recommends that you make feedback a recipe and not a statement. Um, and, you know, quite often we we see examples, hopefully not so much anymore, but we see examples of feedback as a statement, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a common pitfall. And in his book, um, Embedding Formative Assessment, Dylan William sort of provides a nice example of this. He talks about um, speaking to a student um, who was looking at the feedback his oh, yeah. teacher had given him on a science assignment. And the teacher had written, you need to be more systematic in planning your scientific inquiries. And when Dylan William asked the student about what that meant to him, he just said, well, if I knew how to be more systematic, yeah. I would have done that in the first place.
1: Yeah. So feedback, generally speaking, you know, like uh, John Hattie, Helen Timperley, in their research, they write about these kind of three uh, key key kind of areas, key points in, in feedback. One, you know, where am I going? So um, what's what's the goal? What's the vision? What's the sort of exemplary version of where I'm trying to head to? Um You know, what's the kind of gap between where I am and and there, you know, Um, and then crucially, like, you know, how am I doing in getting towards that thing? You know, how is it, how is what I'm putting in as effort, what I currently know, the practices that I'm adopting, how is that helping me to get to this? And then crucially, what do I do next? Like literally, what should I do now to take that next step? And, you know, for some students, they can figure a a lot of that out themselves. For others, they need much more scaffolding, which is why, as teachers, we need really, really good assessment information to help figure out who needs what and when. But beware with feedback um, that, you know, feedback given at the level of the self is generally not all that effective. In fact, it's pretty ineffective for um, helping students. So, to... so what do you mean by the level of the self? So, sa- they, so, so, so girl Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before. Jamie, you're really good at this. Yeah, because then you go, OK, great. I've got What it next? Yeah. So what? So while we want to be encouraging and supportive and create that kind of supportive environment for learning, you know, feedback that's at the level of the task. So about the thing that you did, uh, the the kind of uh, the performance of that task, so the way that you did it, how you engaged, how you started, how you finished, all the rest of it, and then feedback on your self-regulation, how you stuck at things or didn't okay. when stuff got hard. So that then you've got a little bit of information about the thing itself, how to do the thing, and how to manage yourself as you do this thing. Um, I'd say, though, you know, feedback that's around those things is really useful.
0: Yeah, okay. So, well, I'm just going to try something out here. And what I might do is is play um, a clip, actually, of um, a chap called Harry Fletcher Wood, Mm. um, talking um, about how feedback is received by students. And this is from um, our Assessment Essentials course
2: argument that students often dislike feedback because they see it as criticism. They think that they are getting this feedback not because we're trying to help them, but because, I don't know, we we enjoy picking on them or, you know, uh, we like going home in the evening and and to pick out the mistakes that they made. And a really interesting study that has uh, tested this and, and tried to get over it uh, was was constructed in America, and they asked teachers to mark as they normally would, and then separately to write on a series of post-it notes either a, a bland message or a message that said, "I'm giving you this feedback because I, ha- I have high expectations and I think you can meet them." And then the researchers stuck these post-its on on random students' work or on students' work at random. And what they they did a series of experiments, and and what they found was. Students who have these post-its were more likely to choose to resubmit their uh, work, so to to edit it, to improve it, to submit it again. They found that when students resubmitted, uh, uh, they they got higher grades, and they found that subsequently, students said they trusted the the school more as an institution. They they, they, they built trust with them. So it, it sounds really obvious, and we definitely do it sometimes, But I think any time we can reiterate these two points, I'm giving you this feedback because I expect everyone in the class to do brilliantly, and because I know that you can do brilliantly if you just do X, Y, and Z. I think that that helps encourage students to use the feedback.
0: So that's Harry Fletcher Wood there, the author of uh, Responsive Teaching, talking about feedback. And clearly we can't use post-it notes, as he was describing there, in an online learning environment. But... The, the comments uh, that we can make still apply. Also, um, we have the input of Shirley Clark, um, who's written a book on feedback with John Hattie, and she has some views here on planning learning objectives for purposeful feedback.
3: Learning intentions or learning objectives, same thing, is the starting point for planning lessons and also for students to have any chance of actually meeting our expectations. Every learner needs to know what it is they're actually learning. I mean that's that's the fundamental start and it's amazing to think that several decades ago children were never told learning intentions. Um, They had to try to guess why on earth they were being asked to paint a rainbow for instance and without clear understanding of what you're learning You often are not sure about what to do. You don't know how you're going to be judged. So, as I said, a fundamental starting point. Now, Roy Sadler was somebody who first talked about closing the gap. And in many ways, his description of closing the gap is actually the heart of formative assessment because it starts with the first, it's just three deceptively simple conditions in order to learn and to close the gap between current and, and you know uh, future performance, you have to first possess a concept of the goal. Possess a concept is interesting. It doesn't just say possess, uh, just know the goal, possess a concept of. So that's why you not only need to know the learning intention, what you're learning, you also need to know to have a concept of it. You need to know how how that learning intention breaks down, which is where success criteria come in—an actual breakdown of well, what does it mean to do this? What do you have to do first? What do you have to do next? Or what are all the possible ingredients to be able to achieve this learning intention? And also, possessing a concept means you, in the best possible scenario you see examples of what good ones look like and maybe what bad ones also look like. So that instead of you getting some kind of mystery recipe and you have no idea what the finished cake is supposed to look like, you actually have analysed with the teacher examples of good ones. I always say to teachers imagine if when you were at university um, in seminar groups, you'd been given two uh, and analyzed together two examples of really excellent essays, assignments from last year, and one that was kind of average. And together, it analyzed what made those good and what had made the other one not so good. And I think every, every person would get distinction. Because it's, it's that kind of analysis that just makes it completely real and obvious and clear. So that's going beyond just knowing the success criteria. It's actually saying, what actually does it look like?
0: So we've um, played a couple of clips there um, of audio that we already had. But specifically for this little chat of ours, you contacted um, one of our advisory board members, uh, John
1: Hattie. What advice did he have? What was his kind of um steer on it so john replied very quickly to my uh my request for a bit of assistance on this and one of the things that he said that i think is really useful is as he put it the the most powerful feedback is is feedback that's that's received it's understood and is used in a kind of where to next format so it's you know not just um you know a teacher you know giving some comments and what have you but really directing on what happens next, and that the student then understands that. So that's the, the kind of key element there. And as he puts it, you know, uh, there's everything's right about you know comments and corrections and content and all that kind of stuff, but always aim to add where the student could, you know, best next move in terms of what they should think about, what they should study, what they should learn. And then maybe what we as a teacher should, you know, reteach and what have you. So it's always about some kind of, you know, ideal kind of um, state in the future moving from here. And it's then giving a clear understanding of that, of where that next step is. And I think, you know, if we kind of consistently come back to that in feedback, you know, that's always going to be about either the task itself or about how you go about the task, how you manage your your time and your efforts and things like that in in doing the task. But above all else, it's got to be understood and then used. If it's not acted upon, Mm -hmm. then even the greatest next steps feedback um, is just hot air.
0: Okay, Stuart, can we try and just quickly bring uh, what we're talking about to life and look at some effective and less effective Mm. versions of comments we could yeah. um put on someone's work i don't know let's say it's um some writing about history
1: mm-hmm. yeah okay so um so we need to make things you know uh, clear um and be specific with the kind of with the message that we're trying to communicate so for instance you know a simple observation like you, you didn't write an awful lot here you know well. For most students, they probably know that already. Um, We didn't need us to point it out. So if we go back to the idea of feedback on the task or how they did the task and things like that, saying something um, that, you know, you could have uh, written more about a particular aspect. You could have written more about what somebody said. You could have um, given your opinion on the quotation Or whatever it might be. So, again, we're linking, um, you know, in a kind of specific way as opposed to just observing. We're giving some next steps ideas Um, instead of saying, you know, um, like, well done, that's good. Uh, You know, then talk about, again, what's good about it. So, you know, including uh, these three points in support of your argument is really good. Keep doing that kind of thing. Uh, but then again, we want to always look to those next steps and say, and maybe next time, you um, Try to, um, you know, find, find a, a quotation from somebody else's, you know, another source to support your point here. Okay. So, you know, we're always kind of trying to add in that little bit of um, a, a kind of a challenge for the next steps as well as just observing the current state and saying yeah. this is good, this is bad or whatever. Um, want it to be purposeful, want it to be meaningful. You know, again, the, the most important thing about, a stu- uh, about feedback is what a student does with it. So it needs to be meaningful and understandable by them. And it needs to be about, you know, their understanding of the task and how they did the task. Um, And then those next steps, you know, use, um, you know, more supporting examples to, um, you know, to add weight or to, to, you know, to to increase the kind of credibility of your discussion about this particular topic or whatever Mm. it is. Um, Instead of just saying, OK, or this is good. We
0: say um, this shows that you've got a good grasp of the structure
1: of a of an effective report. Yeah. don't Don't just don't just let them know that they've done well. Yeah. You know, or done poorly. It needs to be less about performance. Of why, a task. You it's, know. Because it's, yeah. it's like if you're learning to drive, somebody can tell you, you know, you're a terrible driver, but that doesn't help you get better yeah. at driving. That just helps you to know that you're yeah. a terrible driver. The other nice Dylan William example is uh, it's like telling
0: a comedian to be funnier. Yeah. Like, yeah. How, how do you do that? Yeah.
1: And so children, you know, hopefully if they've got you know, the motivation they feel in a supportive environment, you know, if, if things aren't going well and they need to, to know, uh, but then they need to understand that getting better comes back to them doing something differently. And it's our job to help them to understand what that different thing might be and then over to them to have a go.
0: Okay, Stuart. So let's bring this to a close then with some sort of
1: final pointers on feedback. Okay. Um, Right. So first of all, um, can't reiterate enough that, you know, feedback should be, um, you know, about uh, where you're trying to get to the gap between your current state of knowledge and then some kind of desired goal, um, you know, and then also how that student is doing in moving towards that goal. So, and, and sharing those exemplars, being really clear about what success looks like, about you know, what you would end up doing if you were able to write this piece or do this calculation or draw this picture. Here's what it would look like and here's how you're doing. And then here's the next step for you, right? Really clarifying those things. I think that's really important. Um, and obviously then uh, if we've got those as kind of underpinning foundations for our feedback, then we just need to use technology as the vehicle. Right. So using, you know, online um, uh, kind of tools like Google Docs or whatever, live commenting on people's writing and stuff like that. But what we're actually doing in those comments needs to still have those kind of features of good feedback. Um, And good feedback then is probably going to be based upon the information that comes out of your assessment processes. So the quality of the assessment is really important in the quality of the feedback. You know, because if, if you get dodgy information, you're probably going to you know, write things that aren't quite as well targeted. So think about the quality of the question that you're asking. So I'd say, crucially, make sure that you, you have um, assessment tasks that relate to the curriculum, that give you good information, that also engage students in thinking hard about, about the stuff that's in the curriculum and that feedback is always clear, specific, purposeful and meaningful. Yeah,
0: it's all about where they're going, how they're doing And what next
1: next steps next steps finally very very quickly should we avoid using grades um and i would say don't use grades and unless you've got a child who is um in the kind of final run-up to some kind of external examination you know if it's GCSE or some or some examination like that and they really need to know how well they're doing against that particular thing grades can often be a distraction they can be demotivating for a variety of reasons and they don't often give very much useful information
0: okay thank you we're going to draw it to a close now i hope you found some of that useful good luck